Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fido? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. AFC? NIO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Go. Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. Mission Control. For a child of the 60s raised in the Apollo era, those words conjure up an image of a room filled with flickering consoles and serious-looking engineers in short-sleeved collared shirts and straight dark ties wearing dark-rimmed glasses and headsets. As a kid, it was the kind of semi-mythical place that I knew existed, but which, as a kid growing up in Canada, was not a place that I ever expected to see much less work in. So it was all the more strange one day when I found myself standing in mission control with an earpiece in my ear, watching a rack of equipment, and singing along to Stan Rogers' song, Northwest Passage, as it was broadcast to the astronauts aboard the space shuttle Atlantis in orbit around the Earth at the time. To understand that story, we need to talk about a few things, not the least of which is the fact that I had been a longtime fan of Stan Rogers, as had Canadian astronaut Chris Hadfield, who was on board Atlantis at the time. Stay tuned. It will all make sense by the end of the episode. First, though, I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about mission control, how it works or worked, and what it was like to work there. For the record, when I say mission control, I mean the late shuttle-era mission control center at the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. By late shuttle-era, I mean 1995 and beyond, so the second half of the shuttle program. This is because in 1995, the shuttle program transitioned from the old Apollo-era mission control facility in Building 30 at JSC to a brand new extension that had been built in preparation for building and operating the International Space Station. I arrived at JSC in June of 1994, just as the new control center was being completed. I was a newly minted PhD student working for a small Canadian company, which many of you know was called Neptech Design Group. I came to JSC to help continue to develop, test, and eventually fly a new system called the Space Vision System, and I have talked about it in an earlier episode called It's All Dots Until, so I won't say much about it here. Just as I arrived at JSC, NASA was putting the finishing touches on a plan that they called the Space Station Phase 1 program, known to pretty much everyone else as the Shuttle Mir program. Under this program, NASA would send the space shuttles to dock with the orbiting Russian Mir space station, and eventually NASA astronauts would travel to Mir as crew members for months at a time. This really was a brave new world for NASA and the shuttle program. At the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall was only five years in the past. The Phase 1 program would mean that Russian and American pilots turned astronauts would live and work together in orbit where once they had trained to engage each other in air-to-air -air combat. Just as I arrived at JSC, it was also announced that the Americans and Russians would be joined by a Canadian ex-fighter pilot when Chris Hadfield was assigned to the second Shuttle Mir docking mission, STS-74. The mission would be a first for both NASA and the Russian Space Agency as the shuttle would carry a new module to Mir and install it on the station. This module was known to NASA as the Russian docking module, or more usually the DM, and this was the first time that there had ever been an international construction mission in space. 
As part of the mission, Chris and his teammate, a U.S. astronaut called Bill MacArthur, would test the space vision system to see if it could be used to help accurately position the docking module during the assembly operation. This was in early June of 1994. STS-74 was due to launch in November of 1995, and I knew what I would be doing with the next 18 months of my life. At the time, I worked directly in the robotics section of the NASA Mission Operations Directorate. This group was known by its mail code, DF44. We spent the summer and early fall of 1994 understanding the on-orbit operations that SVS was expected to support, developing and testing a plan for how to make it work, testing that plan in multiple different simulators, and finally turning the plan into actual procedures to be used by the crew on orbit. Then we started training the crew to use the system. And we started thinking about how the operation would be supported from the mission control center. I realize in hindsight that this was probably a concern for my NASA colleague. You see, I was really the only person with enough technical understanding of how the SVS worked to provide direct support during the flight. But I was not a flight controller. Achieving that designation required at least a couple of years of concentrated study and training, training which I did not have and could not get in time for the flight. But since there was no choice, it was decided that I would work in MCC during the mission. But I would do so under the close supervision of the professional flight controllers from DF-44. To understand how that worked, you have to understand a bit about how mission control was organized and how it functioned during a flight. Most people are familiar with the image of mission control as a room full of computer consoles with a big screen at the front showing the location of the spacecraft as it orbits the Earth. This is actually only one room in the Mission Control Center, albeit the most important room. In NASA parlance, this is known as the Flight Control Room, known to one and all as the Ficker. It is the home of the minor deity known as the Flight Director, who runs the mission and the Mission Control Center while the spacecraft is in flight, and who is known to one and all simply as Flight. In this case, in flight, is defined as being once the spacecraft has cleared the tower at the Kennedy Space Center. Until that moment, the spacecraft and its booster were the responsibility of the launch control center at the Kennedy Space Center. The flight director sat in the middle of the Ficker, about three quarters of the way to the back. Joining the flight director in the Ficker were a number of other flight controllers with responsibilities for various subsystems that made up the space shuttle. These included some positions that were holdovers from the Apollo days who retained their original names. One of these was the Capcom or Capsule Communicator who sat next to the flight director. The Capcom was, and is, the MCC's link to the spacecraft on orbit. The only person who can speak to the crew over the air-to-ground communications link is the Capcom. The Capcom was always an astronaut and, by tradition, an astronaut who had already flown. Sitting around Flight and Capcom at the epicenter of the Ficker were flight controllers with names like Booster, who monitored the main engines and solid rocket boosters, Prop, who looked after all of the other shuttle propulsion systems, Fido and Guido, the flight dynamics and guidance officers, who were responsible for ensuring the shuttle went where it was supposed to go, GNC, or Guidance Navigation and Control, who made sure that the onboard systems that Fido and Guido depended on were working properly. The flight activities officer, or FAO, who made sure that everything on orbit stayed on schedule. 
Eagle and Ecom, who monitored things like electrical generation, cryogenics, environmental and emergency systems, and onboard consumables. INCO, or the Instrumentation and Communications Officer, who made sure that we all could talk to the and listen to the spacecraft on orbit. GC, or Ground Control, who made sure that all the MCC systems were working properly, including the backup diesel generators that would switch on in case of a power failure. There were other more task-specific flight controllers like Rendezvous, EVA, and the position that I reported to, PDRS, or the Payload Deployment and Retrieval Systems Officer. To everyone else in the world, this was the space shuttle's robot arm known to Canadians as the Canadarm. Inside MCC, it was always PDRS. Thankfully, no one ever decided to shorten it to Peters or something like that. Inside MCC, the Ficker was known to one and all as the front room. Every front room controller had between two and four people supporting them from a multi-purpose support room or MIPSER, known pretty much universally as the back room. For STS-74, I would be working in the PDRS back room. I would report directly to PDRS in the front room, but I would very much be where the PDRS back room flight controllers could keep an eye on me. Front room and back room were connected and interconnected by an intercom system known in MCC as the voice loops or simply the loops. In the Apollo days, flight controllers would wear earphones in order to listen on the loops, but by the time I was working in MCC, everyone wore an in-ear earpiece, a foreshadowing of the age of the earpod. Most also wore a small boom microphone so they could talk on the loops. However, this was before the days of Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, so every flight controller had to connect to their console with a long spiral cord. The cord ended in a pretzel switch, which was used to key your microphone. The microphone in the earpiece plugged into the pretzel switch unit, which most people carried in their pocket or hooked on their belt. The loop system gave flight controllers access to literally hundreds of possible internal intercom channels which they could monitor and a relatively smaller number of loops on which they were authorized to talk. The two central channels were known as the flight loop and the air to ground. The flight loop was the flight director's channel on which he and all the front room controllers talked. The air to ground was for traffic between Capcom and the crew on orbit. The other loops were for conversations between the various front and back rooms and other supporting functions. Everyone in MCC monitored the two main loops to ensure that they knew what was going on, but also to ensure that they did not talk over or step on Flight or Capcom. Because, of course, the way the loops worked was that you heard all of the traffic in your head without any way to know which loop was generating it. So it was really important not to be talking in your front room's ear while the flight director or crew were saying something they needed to hear. The whole system meant that MCC was a bit like a duck swimming in a pond. To the casual observer, MCC operated smoothly and easily, and the mission proceeded along. Underneath, though, the legs were churning madly. To give you an example, a simple question and answer from the crew might sound like this. Houston, discovery for SVS. That's the shuttle calling the ground. Go, says Capcom. Uh, we were getting ready for the SVS operation later today, and we noticed that in the execute package, there was a note to use camera delta instead of alpha like we had planned. Just wanted to check that we were reading that right. After a short pause, 
Capcom would reply, yes, Discovery, you have that right. The team did some testing on camera alpha overnight, and there seems to be an issue with the zoom control. We'd like to go to the backup. Copy that. Thanks. In the background, this is what probably was happening. Houston Discovery for SVS. Hearing my name from on high, I would key my mic and say, SVS is here, to PDRS, my front room controller, on the SVS loop. PDRS would likewise say, flight PDRS, we're listening, on the flight loop. And Capcom would say, go, on the air to ground. Meanwhile, I'd be grabbing my copy of the procedures and any other notes I thought I might need. As the crew was asking the question, I would probably have figured out what was coming, and I would remind Peter S. that we had, in fact, done some testing while the crew was asleep. We weren't happy with the primary camera, and so we'd asked to have the change to the backup included in the daily procedure update, which was known as the execute package. PDRS would say something like, flight PDRS, that's affirmed. We checked during planning and found an anomaly with the camera alpha zoom control, Inco's working it, but we'd rather switch to the backup to be safe. Flight would say copy, and Capcom would respond to the crew. <sighs> so, a lot going on to generate a simple back and forth. The gold standard was always to be able to respond to questions quickly enough that Capcom could respond as if he had known the answer all along and not have to say something like, wait, we're checking. This is why you always had to keep one ear open on the flight or air to ground loops in case your name got called. Of course, it was not always possible to meet that gold standard of response. When the questions were less routine and basically in the form of, Houston, we have a problem, then things got a lot more interesting. This was not a common occurrence, but it wasn't uncommon either. And that was why we were all there, after all. There is only so much that even a highly trained astronaut crew can be expected to know about the space shuttle and all of its systems and payloads. I remember one of those moments particularly clearly. It was on mission STS-80 in the fall of 1996. SVS was on the flight, so the crew could do some testing using targets that had been installed on the Wake Shield facility. Story Musgrave, who at that point was just about the most experienced NASA astronaut still flying, was the mission specialist responsible for operating SVS. At the time, we didn't have telemetry from the SVS unit, so we had to rely on the crew to tell us how the testing was going on orbit. We knew the testing should have started, but we hadn't heard anything from Story. And then suddenly, Houston, Columbia, for SVS, go. We're on page three of the PDRS procedures, and we're trying to get the SVS fired up. We have toggled the power switch multiple times, but we're not seeing anything. We've checked all the cabling and tried again, and still no joy. Uh-oh, that's not good. I immediately responded with, uh, PDRS, SVS, we're checking, which is basically then repeated by PDRS on the flight loop and Capcom up to the crew. Meanwhile, I'm staring at my SVS unit in front of me in the MIPSR, and everyone else in the MIPSR is literally staring at me. Likewise, PDRS, flight, and Capcom are all figuratively staring at me over the loops. Now, in later days, we would have had a book of malfunction procedures known as the MAL book. The MAL book was organized by failure signature so that when a failure like this was described, you could immediately find the relevant troubleshooting procedure and direct the crew to it. At that time, I had none of that. What I did have was a lot of time working with the SVS unit in the lab. Now, that SVS unit was portable, 
and it consisted of an IBM ThinkPad laptop connected to an expansion chassis that contained all of the actual SVS hardware and interfaces to the shuttle. The ThinkPad connected to the expansion deck via a long multi-pin connector on the back. In my experience, that connector sometimes didn't seat properly, which could lead to all sorts of strange behavior. I figured that in zero-G, it might even be more of a problem. Besides, it was quite literally the only thing I could think of. So I said as calmly as I could, PDRS, SVS, I think it might be the connector on the back of the laptop. It happens in the lab sometimes. We should have them try pulling the laptop and reseating it on the tray and then powering up again. And PDRS said on the flight loop flight, we'd like the story to power off, pull the laptop off the expansion tray, reseat it firmly, and cycle the power. Capcom, who it turned out was listening in on the SVS loop so he could get the full story firsthand, repeated the instructions to story on orbit. There followed five of the longest minutes of my life. And then we heard Houston, Columbia for SVS, thanks, that worked. We're up and running and moving on with the procedures, to which Capcom replied, Columbia, Houston, copy that. Flight said thanks to PDRS on the flight loop, and that was that. In the Mipser, though, there was great rejoicing. The professional flight controllers from the robotics group were congratulating me and treating me like a real flight controller, which is still one of my favorite moments in all of my career. Only later did I admit to them that if it hadn't worked, I had no idea what to do next. Well, that's probably going to do it for this portion of this episode of Terranauts. There are lots more stories to tell about working in MCC, including, I realize, the one about Stan Rogers and Chris Hadfield, but it looks like they're going to have to wait as we're going to have to make this a multi-part episode. Tune in again to hear more Terranauts tall tales from Mission Control. In the meantime, if you are a Terranaut who has worked in Mission Control, any kind of Mission Control, why not send us your tall tales? You could be on the show. So long for now. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of Terranauts. Thanks for joining us. A reminder that you can now find Terranauts on iTunes and other podcatcher apps for iOS and Android. Please consider subscribing and leaving a review. If you have comments on the episode, you can email us at podcast at spaceq.ca. We read and answer all of your comments in a timely fashion. You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter at Canada in Space and on Facebook. Thanks again for listening, and join us again next time when we'll go to space without ever leaving the planet. Talk to you then. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.